Today I want to talk to you about a subject that I suppose I could kind of, you know, riff off of what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I might, we'll see how it works. It, it, I don't want to get too obsessed by that, but the title that I have for today's message is Rejoice or Have Joy. Oh, let's see, I've got to get my, my initial screen on here. Hold on. Boom. Well, there you go. Not quite what I was hoping for. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Be joyful because your life has purpose. And so I suppose that uh, I was thinking of this as we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We all live in the same world. We all face the same um, constant onslaught of ideas and opinions. And I put it to you that a very great and a very horrible lie has taken firm root in our society and perhaps in each and every one of us to a degree. And that lie is simply this. Human life has no purpose. That's the lie. And it comes in a variety of different disguises. Um, you know, if your children are in school and they're being taught, probably that's what they're being taught. Life doesn't have any purpose. We're not created beings. We don't have a great destiny to fulfill. We're a highly improbable accident that came about by a series of random events. Events, meaningless. We come from nothing, and our end is nothing. And in between the two nothings, the best that you and I can do is grab a bit of pleasure and enjoyment until the day we die. That is a lie. God's message to you is that your life does indeed have purpose. And knowing that purpose is the way to find joy. And if you're dissatisfied, if you're unhappy, if you're not feeling good, you want joy. I mean, maybe you've prayed for joy. Maybe you've prayed for good thoughts, good vibrations, positive attitudes, joy. You can find joy through finding your sense of purpose that God has put before you. And joy is yours regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in, whether you be Solomon who was rich or Job who was under great trial. God, your Father, your Creator, is preparing you for something big. Now, we're going to take a look at this concept through the book of, or the letter to the Philippians, which we went through as a congregation, we read through, and I've been thinking about it myself a lot as a result. And in Paul's letter to Philippi, he begins teaching the congregation. And he's, he's got a message about purpose. But he begins teaching the congregation about leadership. That's where he starts off, leadership, okay? And, uh, but he, he, when he's talking about leadership to the people of Philippi, he does not present it in a way that they're used to thinking about it. 
And I think, you know, over the years, we've, if you've been around for a long time, you have developed a more biblical perspective on leadership, and you realize that it is different from what you get out there. But uh, Paul is presenting this concept to them in a way that they're not used to thinking about. Followers of Christ must learn a new attitude towards leadership that is based on personal humility and service. All right, that's not the message for today, although it could be, and it's a good message, but that's not the message for today. But it's a transformation of mind. It's a transformation of thinking, okay? And that transformation of mind is the driving purpose of God's present spiritual work what God is up to, what he's doing, why you're involved. That is God's present spiritual work. And it's important to all God's people. These concepts are important to all of us, not just elders, not just deacons or sermon givers. It's for everybody, all of us. God's present spiritual work is to prepare the future leadership of the world, if you will, the future leadership who will assist the king of kings to administer the rule of God on earth. And it's only after that this essential piece of the puzzle is put in place that we move forward. Only after this essential peace is in place, does the kingdom of God on earth begin? And only after that, God's call of salvation to the rest of the dead that we will discuss at the Feast of Tabernacles in more detail. The resurrection that follows the millennial rule of Christ. That's big picture stuff very much involved. I know we've got some visitors here that might be something you're not really uh, familiar with. We will discuss it in greater detail at the feast, though. The point for today is purpose. You are an important piece being worked out, or a very important piece, if you will, in a carefully worked out sequence of events. As the scriptures say, all this has been predestined. God has a plan, that's what it's getting at. And you are part of it. That is your present purpose. That gives meaning to your life. Now let's go to the book of Philippians, as I mentioned, and take a look at what Paul has to say. And I'll read verses 1 and 2 just to get started, okay? Uh, Paul and Timothy, that Timothy worked together with him in ministry, Servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where Paul begins. He's presenting himself as a leader. but a leader who identifies as a servant, right? A servant. Now, many at that time, 
Many at that time, and perhaps in our own day too, but not, not quite the same, many at that time would have viewed this as a very weird, odd way of looking at leadership. Now, the, the Greeks and the Romans, and that's the you know, cultural setting that Paul was in, the Greeks and the Romans viewed leadership as a, you know, a right that was bestowed or conferred upon some by uh, virtue of uh, noble birth. You know, you were born to lead. Because you got the right parents. Or perhaps you're a leader because of obvious achievement in politics or, or business or especially military matters. This is what leaders were made of. And, you know, when they had those kind of achievements and accomplishments, that culture said, you should take every opportunity you have to let people know about it. You know? Why you are worthy. <laughs> Why you are a leader. And uh, Greco-Roman society, the people of this day, the people in Philippi, the you know, world culture, the way they would be raised and think, would have considered a servant uh, despicable. I mean, they despised people who were servants. They considered them to deserve their low status as servants because they were inferior. That's just the way they thought. So to teach people, like Paul's doing here, about leadership performed in a spirit of humility with the self-image of a servant was what I'm going to call a counter-cultural message. People like to be counter-cultural now, right? That was a counter-cultural message. It went against the grain. But instead of inferiority, you know, Paul is presenting the status of servant as a badge of honor. He's proud of it, isn't he? Why is he proud of it? Because of whom he serves. As he says, servants of Christ Jesus. Because of whom you serve. Okay? Now, Paul goes on. And he wants to talk about his relationship with all these people here in Philippi. You, like the people that Paul was talking to, share God's great purpose with others. And this is very important. Your sense of purpose is not just something in your own mind. You share it with other people, which means it's out there on the table. Now, the church of God, that was what the Philippians were. That's what we are. The church of God is an assembly of people whom God has set apart from the rest of humanity. A holy people. That's what holy means. Set apart for godly use. God's got a purpose for this. And he's setting it apart to develop it for his purpose. A holy people. A people called to accomplish an important task. Now you become part of the holy people. This is just a generic picture of you know, people that I got on the internet, right? But you are called to be part of 
the holy people through your participation in God's church, your participation in the body of Christ. And it has its own structure and it's got its own organization and its own purpose. And in some ways it mirrors society around us. In some ways it's unique of its own. But its structure and its organization and its purpose is decreed by God. And it has a purpose, which is to facilitate the preparation and the teaching of these future leaders in the kingdom of God. Now, when I say this, I, I draw this out because of how Paul phrases what he says here. He draws attention to a couple of categories of people, if you will, within the church. And he draws attention to organizational positions. Right? So he talks about overseers. And he uses the word episkopos. Right? Um, you, it sounds very churchy, you know, episcopal, that kind of thing. But actually, in a non-religious setting like a place like Philippi, you know, back in the, in the day, uh, that would have been the word they'd use to describe the commissioner of a new Roman colony, for example. I mean, the Romans would colonize places, they'd set up their soldiers with grants of land and they'd build a colony and they built this colony called Philippi. So this was a Roman colony and it had an episcopos in charge of it. So using such a title, Paul's use of such a title, is an expectation of, I believe, organization and structure and authority within a local congregation. As you know, big or small as it was, I don't know how big Philippi was, I don't know how small it was, but there was structure and there was organization there. And then he refers to deacons, you know, and, and that's another reference to authority and structure within the congregation. And deacons are, they're leaders, obviously, but they're not overseers. And I draw that out because there was organization and there was structure and it had a purpose. And Paul says, you are a holy people together with the overseers and deacons. So he's drawing attention to you're part of the holy people and you're in this organization, in this structured thing. And uh, so I put it to you that your spiritual identity and your purpose as a holy people becomes real and understandable, and, and you can grasp it through active participation in his church. Thank you for coming. <laughs> That's what you do. And people have ideas, you know, but they just don't fly. Solitary, mystical experiences with God. You know, they, they, they sound very appealing. You know, I've, I've I've got this thing going on with God and I have this, you know, feeling like the Holy Spirit is moving me and, okay. But a solitary mystical experience with God is not preparing you for your future role in the administration of God's will on earth. God accomplishes that through his church. Love it, hate it, whatever, but that's how God's working. And it's organized and it has a structure. And people have a lot of fanciful ideas about, you know, they, I, I, people like to think, well, you know, the first century church was, was different. You know, they, they were kind of looser. They, they, they did things kind of different, you know. Uh, they move, were more moved by the, the free flow of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were more spontaneous and people would just get up and start pre No. 
No. The truth is that Paul himself, when we just read it, Paul himself was instrumental in establishing and affirming structured local leadership. So the church was a thing. It was a real thing. It wasn't just a place you came together to, you know, experience the spirit. I hope you do. But you do that within the context of the church, and that's what gives it meaning and purpose. Paul himself was involved in appointing local leadership structure and anointing those who would care for the congregations when he wasn't around. So they're in this together. That's the point, okay? Be thankful for that because you're not alone. And the church is your constant reminder every week and perhaps more, you're not alone. Be thankful for a shared sense of purpose with others. It's not just your own personal vision. Other people share this with you and that's a good thing and it should be something that you think about and appreciate. Be thankful. The gospel is a message of the coming kingdom of God on earth, is it not? That is the gospel. If you are a little bit unfamiliar with that concept, go to the booklets that we have out there, read our booklet on the kingdom of God. Okay? I think I mentioned this last time I was here too. That is the gospel. That will walk you through all the scriptures that prove to you from the very words of Jesus himself, from the very words of Paul himself, this is the gospel. The present call that's out there, God's call to salvation, it goes out into the world. Okay? But only a few are drawn by God. This is what God says. Many are called, few are chosen. The call goes out, but only a few are drawn by God to participate for his purpose, which is that they, you, might prepare for a role within the rule of Christ on earth. And that perspective, that way of thinking gives each and every one of us a sense of purpose. Why is all this happening? Why is this happening to me? It has purpose. And it can give purpose to everything you do and should, and, and, and I hope it does, give purpose to everything we do. You are not, you are not the helpless victim of random meaningless events. You're, you're not a twig that floats down the river of life, washed to and fro by the little eddies and currents of water. That's not going to give you a sense of purpose. And if you're being taught that, you are being taught that, fight it with God's word. You are not a helpless victim, neither are you a helpless beneficiary you know, just kind of getting, uh, winning the lottery of life, as some people like to say it. No. Now, time and chance happen. And we'll read that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Time and chance happen to all people. Events just happen. You know that, right? You know that. Stuff happens. But knowing God's purpose... gives even those events that are random or by chance perhaps 
purpose. And so even in this, you know, flowing stream of stuff happening, you have purpose from God's word and God's plan. Now let's get back to the book of Philippians. Uh, let me just move on here and I'm going to read the next section, which is verses 3 through 10. Already? <clears throat> and this is where Paul gets into this thankfulness for a shared purpose with the people of Philippi. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day Christ returns. And it is right and good for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and sorry, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, that time when Christ returns. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. They're in it together. They're partners is what he's saying. I am so motivated by the fact that you and I share this same purpose. I have a different role than you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A common sense of purpose, sharing purpose with other people, creates an emotional connection. Paul gets, on, gets at that. There's an emotional connection created for Paul, and the congregation appears to respond, and they have, a somewhat, they have an emotional connection to him. They, he goes into that further in the rest of the letter, but they care about what's going on in his life, and he says that. I am so moved that you, you know, you're sending me people and money and help when I'm in this terrible scenario. I'm, he's in jail, right? He's in prison, okay? And he's deeply moved by the concern that they have for him in his imprisonment. He's in chains, okay? He's in chains. Now, if you were in chains, what, how do you think your state of mind would be if you were in chains? Have anyone ever been in chains? <laughs> okay, we don't really do that too much anymore. Paul is in chains, but his thoughts are dominated by what? Joy, okay? That's what he says. Joy. Why? Because the chains feel so good? No, it's because he has a sense of purpose. He knows that this means something. It's not just a random, insignificant event that's falling on poor old Paul. It has purpose. Now, go put your little ribbon in there in Philippians and turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 2. which speaking here of Jesus Christ, 
It says, fix, our, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now go to James 1, verse 2. Probably just a page over. You've read this before. I know you have because I've sat here and watched you. Listen. It says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So joy. Joy is not an emotion that you feel in response to circumstances. That's not what joy is. The, ex the, the circumstances of being executed by crucifixion were not pleasant or uplifting. But Jesus had joy. In James, the circumstances of a trial, any given trial, you know, whatever it is, you know, sickness, cancer, uh, you know, business failure, marriage failure, whatever your trial is, those are not circumstances that fill you with joy just by soaking up the vibrations. A trial is not a feel-good circumstance. And I would say that joy isn't really an emotion at all. It's something different. I put it to you, this might be an incomplete definition, I put it to you that joy is more of a good understanding of your existence and your purpose in the great spiritual creation project that God is working out as he mentioned, Paul mentioned, that good work that he began in you and will see through unto completion, right? Joy comes from a good understanding of purpose. And joy is one of the dominant themes of the letter to Philippi. He's writing to these people, even while he's in chains, right? Joy, I put it to you, is a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that it, it, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a, a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? But it's a way of thinking. And if you think about what else the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us conviction. We read that every year at the Passover. Helper will come and he will convict you of all righteousness, that kind of thing. The Holy Spirit gives you conviction and understanding. And we go through this Usually when we go through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gives you conviction, understanding, and in that way, gives you joy. Because you see your purpose. Therefore, I put it to you, the joy is not something that the material world or circumstances can give you, neither can it take it away. It's yours. But you got to think it through. <laughs> you got to think about it. And you're going to have to do some work. Now, 
Paul and the people of Philippi have the same purpose in mind. They share the same goals. You know, we, we share the same goals. We're very different people, but we share the same goals. That's how we find our solidarity with one another. And, uh, you know, part of that is looking forward to the resurrection at the return of Christ. Yeah, and there's a personal element to it. But also, that is the time when we will be seated with Christ. When that purpose and our role in God's plan moves forward. When we will be assisting in his administration of God's will on earth. And we share the same joy because we share the same purpose. Now, let's, let's just take a little look at thinking and feeling. Paul uses the phrase, I feel this way about you in my heart. Sounds kind of mushy, doesn't it? Right? If you're reading in the uh, King James, New King James, or ESV, it says think. Right? Aren't these like headed in a different direction? Thinking, feeling, those aren't the same thing, are they? They're totally different. But in the NIV I'm reading, Paul said, I feel this way about you in my heart. So, you know, other translations say think. Both translations have merit. They're both sort of right. They're both incomplete, in my opinion. The word there is phreneo, and it has, in the usage of the original language, both an emotional and a rational application, thinking and feeling. Joy is a combination of thinking and feeling. Joy is found when we use clear thinking, reason, and understanding, understanding of purpose to guide our emotions. Our gut response to circumstances. We guide it with our thinking. So it's a combination of the two. It's like, you know, a mental Reese's peanut butter cup. Peanut butter and chocolate in the same. And he, he, he says, I feel this way in my heart. You know, and the heart is just, you know, the, the way in that day and time they spoke of the innermost person in my core, in my core of my being, um, a place where human will and emotion came from, intellect and feeling, thinking and feeling. And that's why I put it to you that both translations, think and feel, are right, but they only provide part of the whole. Because joy is about putting those two together. Now, Paul is in a trial, but he sees purpose in his trial. He's in prison. Bummer. I don't want to be in prison, do you? No. No, no, no. He's in prison, but he understands that this trial serves God's greater purpose. And he's defending, confirming the gospel in Rome. Right? That's what he said. Even penetrating into the household of Caesar. And this understanding given to Paul through the Holy Spirit, which and God gives it to you too for your circumstances, guides the way this man thinks about his trial. And it guides the way he thinks and feels about the Philippians with whom he shares all these things. And, you know, his relationship with them is all the much stronger because they're there with him in mind and spirit as he suffers. And they share in God's grace with him. 
And you gain solidarity and confidence through the other members of the congregation. Give it, take it. Sometimes you'll be a giver, sometimes you'll be a taker. Let's read on in Philippians uh, verse 9. Oh, yeah, I already read that. My eyes deceive me. Oh, that's why I'm still in the book of James. Let me go back to Philippians. All right, uh, let's see. I'll reread this. He says, in my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here Paul speaks about love, all right? That's another one of those words. Is love an emotion or is it a thought? All those who say it's a thought, raise your hand. Chickens. All right, all those who say it's an emotion, raise your hands. Well, at least you're not chickens. <laughs> all right, the word he's using is guess what? Guess what word he's using, Greek word? You are good. Yeah, agape. He's talking about love, and he uses the word agape, and he links it with knowledge, doesn't he? So may this love lead you to knowledge and discernment, knowing what is better, what is the higher calling. And in other words, he's saying thinking and reasoning. Okay? Now, like joy, agape love is not a feeling that sweeps over you because of circumstances. You don't feel agape love just because the circumstances come pouring at you like a wave in the ocean. It's, I feel agape love. Other kinds of love, you feel, eros, you feel that, don't you? When those pheromones and everything start pouring home, I can't stand. That's a response to circumstance. Filial love is a response to circumstances. You know, your mother, your father, your family, your kin. Those are circumstances. Agape is a little different. Agape, if you went, go back to the slide before, thinking and feeling, agape is a combination. Because agape is to choose to love even when you don't feel like it. That's why it's kind of a trick question. <laughs> is this thinking or, or feeling? Agape love, to choose to love no matter what the circumstances. Think of it this way. Just as God chooses to love you, even though you are not especially lovable at all times. Anyone lovable at all times? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, we'll talk. Okay. <laughs> so Paul is speaking of love leading to greater knowledge, okay? But other scriptures speak of uh, growing in love through application of knowledge. It's a little different. Um, yeah. See the arrows? They're pretty thin, but uh, it's meant to be like a circle. Uh, take a look briefly at 2 Peter 1, verse uh, 7 and 8. A section of scripture we do go to, I believe, often. There's others have 
read this, uh, verses 7 and 8. And he's talking about this, you know, building ladder of, of virtues and concepts. And he says, and to godliness, um, oh, maybe I should back up. For this, let me back up to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, you will keep from being ineffective. So what he's giving, the Peter's saying there is, he's giving you this, you know, step ladder. And what he's saying is knowledge is leading you up the ladder towards love. So it goes both ways. And I put it to you that this is another one of those aspects where you've got to think of both simultaneously. Does love lead to knowledge or does knowledge lead to love? Or is it a beautiful circle that just keeps spinning around and around and around? I like to think of this growth, spiritual growth, as an interactive process, okay? God's spirit, which we touched on before, gives you some stuff, but you gotta work with it. God's spirit convicts. It gives you uh, understanding, which leads to love. That's what Peter's talking about. But that love also leads to knowledge. And I put it to you, it is a beautiful circle that keeps spinning around and around and around. But it gets started by God. He gets the plate spinning. You have to keep it spinning. But he gets it started. So I think, you know, it's a process in which, uh, you know, the blessing of the Holy Spirit leads to love, which leads to greater understanding, which leads to greater love. Now Paul's, I put it to you, just breaking into this whole sequence at a point where love is leading to greater knowledge and insight and discernment. And the word he uses there is dokimatsu, which means to discern, to approve, you know, to have tested something and say, yeah, this, this is good, this is work, works out. And it, it's, that's what the word means. You look in the definition. Um, if you read in Romans 12, verse 2, or Romans 2, verse 18, the same word is used, discerning, thinking about things and testing them and approving them. And let me just read Romans 12, verse two. It says, uh, where am I? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this word, but world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve, dokimatsu, what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. So understanding what is good and what is evil. Uh, that's Romans 2, I think. I, mean, I guess I should read that too. Romans 2, verse 18. Uh, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's just the use of this word dokimatsu. So it's an understanding of good versus evil and it's a discernment also of what is good and what is better. That's what Paul talked about. He said, I want you to kind of get to this level where you think about what's better. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. What's better? 1 Corinthians 13, which speaks of love, is about what's better. All this stuff's good, knowledge, prophecy, but what's, I want to talk to you about what's better. 
book of Hebrews. I want to, you know, the old covenant was great, but I want to talk about something that's better. The new covenant. It's better promises, better covenant, better. So you grow in understanding of, of, you know, what is good and then what is better. And this is part of your personal preparation to serve others in their learning of what is good and what is better. When you are seated with Christ, you're not just up there so people can admire you. You have a purpose. You will have a purpose. And we'll talk about that more at the feast. But you are there to guide others in what is good. So you need to know it yourself. You need to be ready, prepared. And that purpose and all the stuff that you do and are going to do is directed by love. You're going to have to be just as loving when you're seated with Christ. And understanding and wisdom and teaching and all that stuff needs to be directed by love. And that's something you learn. When we all look forward to the day of Christ's return, and with that, there's the promise of resurrection, there's a promise of life, you know, and that's good, and I look forward to that, and you do. But you know, it'll be great because you don't have to worry about fear, death anymore. That's good. But there's got to be more to it than that. And there is more to it than that. Not just like I get to exist and I don't have to feel fear anymore. And I can just float around and be, wow, this is great. No. God knows that it is better to have purpose. And so your promise of resurrection, your promise of the future has a plan. A sense of purpose. Even in eternity, a sense of purpose makes everything better. Now, we're still in the present. Let us make every effort to see God's purpose. And Paul, in the next section we're going to read, puts himself forward as an example. Follow me as I follow Christ. Of how to think and behave in the face of adversity. And he walks us through the mental effort, if you will, that he makes to discern God's will in his present trial. Okay? And he is giving us a model of how we can change despair. I mean, if I was in chains, (laughs) I would be battling despair. If I didn't have a sense of purpose, that this made sense in God's plan. How, can, how we can change despair into joy through seeing God's purpose and our purpose. So Philippians 1, verse 12 through 8, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me... So he's referring to his imprisonment. This is terrible. I mean, I'm in a bad place, people. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And the latter do so out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I have joy. Yeah, and I'm going to continue to have joy. So this is how Paul kind of works through his situation, which is more complicated than just being in prison. Now, the, the brethren there in Philippi or Rome or whatever might have thought that Paul being arrested in chains would have hindered the work of God, right? And if, you know, if the, the president of the United States, or the president of the United Church of God gets arrested and put in jail, you know, you're going to be biting your nails. What's happening? So they might have had that kind of response to Paul's predicament, but he's telling them this actually is advancing the gospel. How? Okay. Paul says, by this trial, I am being given access to people within the Roman administration, the very household of Caesar. And he talks about that in Philippians 4, verse 22. I'm in the middle of the whole thing. He's getting access to people high up in the Roman administration, people who would never otherwise have had anything to do with a Jewish man like Paul. And some of these prominent people are responding positively to Paul's well-reasoned declaration of the gospel. Which is a, you know, a better way for them to hear about the truth than to hear about it from enemies or people who don't have a good understanding, they're getting it from Paul. The second good thing that's coming from this trial is the members of the Roman congregation there are getting fired up because they're seeing the sense of purpose. They're fired up rather than discouraged. And they're going out there. And the majority, as Paul says, for good motives, but even you know some minority with selfish reasons. Perhaps the people who were doing it for selfish purposes saw Paul's you know, social disgrace as an opportunity for them to move into positions of leadership. Who knows? So there's you know, some complexity. Paul's not around. People are taking advantage of the situation. But what does he do? He focuses on God's purpose. He focuses on the results. Now, Paul strongly teaches that those who teach within the church of God must have personal integrity. So, you know, he's not saying, oh, it doesn't matter who preaches the truth. But he is focusing on, well, at least it's getting out there. And there are times when the church has people who are not really cut out for the ministry. But if they're teaching the truth, the truth is moving forward. And it would be foolish of us to focus on the failings of the person. Focus on the truth. Let God deal with the people. So, you know, Paul's not saying personal integrity doesn't matter. What he's doing is focusing on the results. Because the truth is the truth no matter who is saying it. The validity of the gospel is not dependent on the perfection of the messenger. Thank you. <laughs> 
It is God's truth. That's where its value comes from. Woe unto you, O preacher, if you are not, you know, setting a good example. So with these two things, Paul is giving us a kind of a, a walkthrough on his thinking, a personal example of how to deal with problems. His own trial, also the rivalries within the congregation, and he circles back around to that, and there are some issues in the congregation, and he talks about that in chapter 4, verse 2, when he gets into it with Yodia uh, and Syntyche, which you should remember from our readings. You know, there's envy, there's rivalry going on in the congregation, and those things are problematic. They're spoken of elsewhere in scriptures, like Galatians 5, verse 20 through 21, or Romans 1, verse 29. Envy, rivalry, they're, they're not good. Those are works of the flesh. You know, and the flesh is, it, it does what it does. It's very self-focused, and, you know, it's very focused on its own interests. Um... And we have those things and we need to deal with them and the Philippians needed to deal with them as well. But by contrast, a spirit of service, a spirit of purpose, desires that the truth be known. I mean, people can, you know, they can preach the truth for the wrong reasons, but the right reason is that this, the truth of God be known by others for the benefit of others. That's the point of preaching the gospel for the benefit of others who might hear and might heed, who God might draw. It's not for me or you to draw a person. It's for us to put the, put the gospel out there. But it's done for them. And that's a spiritual perspective that we ought to have, and it must override you know, the priorities of the flesh, the uh, personal ambition, envy, rivalry, uh, ego, things like that. And the church is a training ground for that kind of stuff. Because you have to deal with issues of envy and rivalry and ego and stuff like that within the church. You know it and I know it. This is training for your future. You're going through it right now. The church is a training ground. It puts you in situations that you wouldn't otherwise have. So there is purpose in living and there's purpose in dying as well. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 19 where we left off. And Paul says this. He says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's expecting good things. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that, as, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now he's getting pretty big picture, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. So Paul, he's hinting that he expects a good outcome. He expects to be released and delivered from his chains. But he also, he has his eye on the big, 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 big picture, which is uh, his own personal deliverance, right? Which is greater than deliverance out of prison. 
his personal salvation from death. Right? And that, as I mentioned earlier, is a strong motivator, but it is better when it fits within a larger scope of God's purpose. Your eternal life will be better because you share God's purpose. But even Paul, musing on his own life or death, is viewing it from the context of purpose. Whether living or dying, he has purpose. Let's read on in verse 21. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. That's a rhetorical question, I think. To be or not to be. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. It'll get me out of this, you know, these painful chains, for one thing. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So that's his musings on living or dying, and he views them, views them within the context of purpose. Purpose. Now, people who teach the go-to-heaven doctrine will use this verse as a proof text, you know, where Paul says, it's better for me to go to be with Christ. The teaching of the United Church of God is that when a person dies, their body decays, dust turns to dust, and their spirit returns to God. That's what we teach. Their spirit returns to God. However, that spirit, apart from the body, is not conscious. Nor is it representative of a complete spiritual being. When Christ returns, and not before, that spirit will be joined to a glorious body, as we can read about in 1 Corinthians 15, it will be joined to a glorious body which is entirely spiritual in composition. And only when this happens, when there's a body put together with the spirit, is a person considered to have been raised to eternal life. In the conclusion, just you know, working through the logic of that, the spirit that returns to God cannot be considered alive else it would not need to be raised back to life. Okay. It's a more complex issue than that. That's a brief summary. Again, we've got more information about that out back. We can't say everything in every sermon. But Paul's reflecting on his own life and his own death. Okay? And he's giving us another example of actively using his thinking and his consciousness and understanding of purpose, God's great purpose, working in his life, but also in his death. I mean, if he goes on living, as he mentions here, then he continues in his present purpose of providing training and help to the members of the church in preparation for their moment when they are resurrected. 
their future role will come, that day when they will administer the rule of God on earth alongside Christ. Two, though, if he dies, if he dies, his next conscious thought will be when Christ returns, when the trumpet blows, doo-doo, and he is raised with Christ, that spirit that has gone to be with God, put together with a glorious resurrected body, and he is once again alive. And that's the time when he, Paul, along with everyone else, you, 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 me, and everyone else who's gone before, will move forward at the same time. No one before anyone else, as Paul says, will move forward into the next phase of God's purposeful plan. That's what your resurrection is about. Otherwise, God could have waited and resurrected you some other time. You are called as a first fruit for a purpose. So, conclusion. If you do the work, if you do the work, I think I've got a slide on that. If you do the work of reorganizing your priorities, of embracing eternity, big picture, you will see your purpose. And when you see your purpose, you will find joy. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you will find joy.